Jeremiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, as Jeremiah wraps up his sermon by the gate, we read, Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress, for thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity and I must bear it. My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me. And they are no more. There's no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains for the shepherds have become dull hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper and all their flock shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities desolate. A den of jackals. Verse 23. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him, and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. Jeremiah concludes this message that began in chapter 7. And in chapter 10, the prophet has already talked about the worthlessness of idols and false gods in verses 1 through 5. And then the prophet declares the value of honoring, trusting, believing, having confidence in the true, eternal, and everlasting God in verses 6 through 16. And now Jeremiah returns to the reoccurring theme of the book. And that is that the consequences of ignoring God, resisting God, rebelling against God, worshiping idols and false gods becomes an invitation to judgment in verses 17 through 25. Now, we know that people have a strange preoccupation with the future. People want to know the future. If there's any hope that they might know the future, they'll go to extraordinary ends to try to extract the future. And I think I understand why. If we live today and we're going to live tomorrow, we want to know what tomorrow is going to bring. But we learn something in the New Testament. Jesus said that we're not to worry about our life, that we're not to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, we're told not to worry about not only our life and the future, but we're to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these other things are going to be added to us. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, you finally come to the section where it says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient to the day is its own trouble. You've been given just enough mental, emotional, spiritual provision to deal with what you have to deal with today. But God gives Jeremiah a vision. He opens up the veil. He opens up a window and he offers a vision of Judah and Jerusalem and their future. And in God's sweeping hand of judgment, it's going to fall on the residents of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. The, vivid, the vision is vivid and the description is given as if the judgment has already taken place. An army is going to come. It's going to destroy all the cities of Ju 
Judah. It's going to invade the city of Jerusalem. The people are going to be exiled and displaced. The judgment, like I said, includes the invasion of a foreign army, the siege of Jerusalem, the exile of the survivors. And Jeremiah paints this vivid picture, the wicked, the disobedient, the people who heard Jeremiah's message, who refused to heed Jeremiah's message, would be killed or cast out of the land. And the judgment was so close. It was so close. When Jeremiah is speaking, he's trying to get the audience to understand the very next thing on God's prophetic calendar is God's judgment. And they're to pack their bags and their belongings and they're to run for their lives in verses 17 and 18. And the vision promises Terrible suffering, unbelievable distress. Jeremiah sees their pain and envisions a mass migration of people as they're running for their lives, as they head for the borders, as they stream into Babylon. He feels their injuries. Their injuries become his injuries. Their wounds become his wounds. Their loss becomes his loss. And in verses 19 and 20, it's as if it's happening to Jeremiah. He grieves for the people and the city because there's no one left to rebuild the city once it's been ruined. And the major blame for the disaster would be placed at the feet of the political and religious leaders who quite literally were supposed to be the gatekeepers. They were supposed to be the shepherds of the people. They were supposed to be selfless instead of selfish. They were supposed to be wise instead of foolish. They were supposed to be righteous instead of wicked. But they ignored God and they defied God and they rebelled against God. And the people and the city were going to have to suffer the consequences. The leaders had failed to build a society based on righteousness and justice and compassion and service and obedience to the revelation of God and to the commandments of the Lord. The leaders had failed to seek the counsel of God's word and they failed to obey God's word. And so it is whenever a nation turns from the Lord, whenever a community turns their back on God whenever a family decides God isn't going to be an important part of our life the Bible isn't going to be the rule and the guide of our life and the realities of what the Bible imparts is not going to be a part of our life and that's why Jeremiah's message becomes such an important message when we think about the inevitable consequences of sin and particular idolatry. It's what we've said over and over again in our study of the book of Jeremiah. That sin invites judgment. We think that we're going to be fine, but we're not going to be fine. Whenever we choose a path of rebellion and disobedience. And so it, this is the close of the message. Remember, he's standing at the gate of the temple and the people are coming in to worship God. And there's Jeremiah at the gate and he screams, gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitants of the fortress or the citadel. He reminds the people that the consequences of disobedience are going to include exile. And so he says, gather up your things and run now. There was an earthquake in Washington, D.C. Can you imagine if a few hours before the earthquake, someone would have said there's going to be a massive earthquake run now? Imagine if you were in Japan before the horrible earthquake comes and kills thousands and thousands of people. And someone had enough sense to say the earth is going to shake. Thousands of people are going to die. Run for your lives right at this very moment. We don't live in a world where we get often advanced notification. Hey, guess what? Your house is going to burn down tonight. That's not the way it works. If that was the way that it worked, then we would be able to anticipate it. 
But here, Jeremiah is through the power of God and the Holy Spirit telling the people that the fortress, the place of safety is no longer safe and that they're soon going to be overrun by the armies of the enemy. And in verse 18, it says, for thus says the Lord. Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it. So here's the image. The image is of a child in Israel who picks up a stone from a brook. I grew up in a world where. We would make our own slingshots. We would take a piece of wood. Some of you are old enough to remember. We would cut the rubber from, from, a, from an inner tube tire and we would make the rubber and we would make the, the, uh, the thing that looks like that. We would add the rubber to it. We would take a piece of leather and we would make our own slingshots. That's the word I was looking for. In ancient Israel, that's not how they made a slingshot. They would take a piece of leather, a long piece of leather, and then they would add a pouch and they would take a smooth stone and they would put the two pieces together and they would sling it around their head and then they would launch the stone. And that's the picture. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land. The idea is that he's going to take the people who are in the land like a sling and he's going to launch them out of there. That's the picture. That God is going to displace them. And you, if you can imagine, if you're walking along the side of a brook and you say to the stone, guess what? You're not going to be there very long. The stone doesn't have any control, it doesn't have any authority, and it doesn't have any ability. It can't resist the child who picks up the stone, puts it in the sling, and launches it away. And the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem think they're safe and they're not. Just like now. We live in a world and we live in a culture and we live in a society where we think we're going to get up and we're going to live our lives and everything is going to be the same. And that no matter what we say and no matter what we do and no matter what we think and no matter how much we resist or reject God, that it's not going to matter. But it does matter. It really does matter. The inevitable consequences of resisting and rejecting God becomes an invitation to judgment. And so when it says, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will throw out at this time. It may not mean a whole lot to you, but I want to draw your attention to that expression in verse 18. At this time. Do you know what the prophet is doing? He's contrasting that time of judgment with an earlier time. Earlier, God had sent prophets. And he sent warnings. God had been patient. And God had been kind. And God had been long-suffering. And his discipline was calculated and gentle and Generous. But when the invading armies of Babylon came, the gentleness and the calculation and the generosity would be over because families would be split, cities would be decimated, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And so that's the picture that Jeremiah has. And as Jeremiah has that picture in verse 19, he says, woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity. In verse 19, the prophet speaks for Jerusalem. In other words, as Jeremiah is preaching, he's preaching on behalf of the city of Jerusalem. The city becomes personified. When he says, woe is me for my hurt, it's the city that's crying out because of the siege and the affliction. In his mind's eye and in his heart, he begins to see the consequences of what the judgment is bringing. That's the challenge. He begins to see what the unfolding plan is. And the city cries out because of the siege and the affliction. And she, the city, expresses her grief. And the picture that Jeremiah is painting is like a nomad. 
in the wilderness whose tent has been ransacked and destroyed. Her children have been scattered or killed. And so the image that Jeremiah gives as the invading armies are coming in, they're invading the household, they're burning it, and the children are running for their lives, and some are being killed right before their eyes. And he says, my wound is severe. But I say... Truly, this is an infirmity. In other words, this is probably a guarded expression of hope. The idea being this is an infirmity or this is an affliction or this is a sickness or the idea is, hey, this is happening. And there's not a whole lot I can do about it. The idea is that something is happening and you don't have any control over it. And the consequences seem to be way out of proportion. Or it could be an explanation of of exclamation of despair when he says my wound is severe in the Hebrew language. It could also say. My wound is incurable or it could say. I'm hurt. In such a way that I don't think I'm going to be able to recover. That's the idea. I'm hurt in such a way that I don't think I'm going to be able to recover. And this becomes sort of like the bottom of the barrel. This is the lowest part of the pit. You know, there's a sacred song that goes... What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised. Thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to you in earnest prayer. Soon in glory, bright, unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. For the person who's sitting in the ash heap, for the person whose family has seemingly been destroyed for the person who begins to live out the consequences of rebellion or wickedness or disobedience, whether it's yours or somebody else's. There's this trial, this pressure, this sense of being weak and heavy laden. Cumbered with a load of care. The pressure is great. The grief too much to bear. And here's the prophet. He sees the city. That was his city. And he sees the people. That are his people. And he sees the consequences. Of sin. And the vision unfolds right before his eyes. And he sees the woman. My tent is plundered, it says in verse 20. And all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. This may not make a whole lot of sense to you. Let me help make sense for you. Look at the expression There is no one to pitch my tent 
anymore. Here's what the woman is saying. My husband is dead or gone. My children are dead or gone. There's no one to to put the tent up and there's no one to put the tent down from a human perspective, from the vantage point of human evaluation, from a purely human perspective. It looks like there is no hope. The, the situation is hopeless. Rebuilding is impossible. This person is in the depths of despair. Frederick Nietzsche famously said, if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will eventually gaze back at you. For a moment, Jeremiah sees this dark, empty, black hole, and he, he starts to get sucked into it. You've probably heard the expression, When you come to the bottom, you will sometimes find God. In other words, when you come to that place of absolute, positive reality that you don't have anyone to depend on, what seems like your normal resources are completely gone. When you have nowhere to go and no one to trust and no one to turn to. Your friends have turned your back on you. Your family aren't speaking to you. The circumstances are such that you are filled with that sense of hopelessness and depression begins to well up inside of you. It was Spurgeon who said, before any great achievement, some measure of depression is very usual. And so the despair and the depression, that empty, dark, black, bleak moment begins to cloud your thinking, your soul and your judgment. Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, said despair is suffering without meaning. In other words, it was his way of saying despair is when the pain and the hurt and the emptiness don't seem to make any sense whatsoever. It was Henry David Thoreau who said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. But again, the point of the picture that Jeremiah begins to paint is of a group of people who have abandoned their God and their friendship with God and their fellowship with God and the revelation of God. They have depended on themselves and they have depended on each other. And now that dependence is reaping the consequences. It's easy to say never despair, but sometimes we do. But despair is a fool's conclusion. And the reason why? Because the Bible makes it clear that we can hope in God. That we can really trust that there is a Lord. That there is a helper. That there's an ever-present Helper in time of need. And even though now in in Jeremiah's preaching, he's come to that sense of the bottom of the barrel. He's going to make his way back to the top. In verse 21, he says, for the shepherds have become dull hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper and their flock shall be scattered He's speaking of the fact that the city of Jerusalem moans and groans and cries out. Why is this happening to us? Why is this happening to us? Why are we experiencing such terrible tribulation? Why have the armies come? Why have they invaded us? Why has God forsaken us? And the city of Jerusalem moans and groans and cries out. And the shepherds are the leaders. And note what it says. They are dull hearted. That's just a nice way of saying stupid. It really is. That's probably the meaning of the Hebrew text. They're stupid. Why are they stupid? Because they've forsaken the Lord. They've not sought the Lord. You see, so many people think that they're so smart. 
I'm going to prove how smart I am. I'm going to prove how smart I am by not believing in God or not trusting God or not or questioning God or questioning the Bible and questioning what it says and questioning its principles. For those of you who were here on Sunday, I, I talked about the parable of the sower and the seed and the soil. And we talked about how when Jesus was giving out that parable about a sower came and he sowed seed in a field, that the problem wasn't the sower and the, certainly the problem wasn't the seed, that the problem was the soil. And the leaders thought that they didn't really need God, that they didn't have to trust God, that they didn't have to embrace the plan and the purpose that God had. And therefore, they won't prosper. And the reason why they won't prosper is because they haven't acted prudently. The leaders haven't sought the will of God. And so the writer says this is part of the reason why the people have scattered, because there's a failure of leadership. And usually when there's a departure and a refusal to honor and obey God, whether it's in the home, whether it's in your community, whether it's in the nation or whether it's in, in the church, that often it's related to a, a massive failure of leadership. Fathers don't lead. Pastors don't pastor. Leaders don't lead. They begin to rely on their own wits, their own circumstances, their own resources. The leaders in Jeremiah's day had not sought the will of God. And so Jeremiah reminds them, this is why they're scattered. And by the way, that future event and all their flocks shall be scattered. That future event of being jettisoned from the land, of being taken captive, is seen in Jeremiah's speech as a present reality. Jeremiah's at the temple gate. And the people are walking in to sacrifice at the temple. The temple that has always been there since the time of Solomon. The sacrifices are taking place. There's the sounds of children playing and people worshiping and life going on as usual. But Jeremiah has seen into the future. He's seen the devastation. He sees the displacement. He sees the consequences. And he's crying out so that the people will listen. And we live in our world. And we go to King Supers or Safeway. We walk in the streets and we drive up and down and we will go home. Many of us will be able to open the refrigerator door and we'll be able to turn on the stove and we'll be able to cook and we'll be able to clean. And for a while, we'll be able to purchase, we'll be able to buy and sell. And it will seem like life will go on as usual. But perhaps for some of you in the not too distant future, a catastrophic event takes place and everything is disrupted. And the world that you grew up in is not the world that your children get to grow up in. And make no mistake about it. All of us will come to the end of our life. And all of us will at some point embrace eternity. And all of us will walk through heaven's gates. Or some of us won't. Because we keep thinking that this life and this world and these circumstances is the real life and the real world and the, and, and, and the true circumstances. But the real life and the true world and the true circumstances are what's going on inside of your heart. It's a willingness to love him now and honor him now and embrace him now. And in verse 22, look what it says. Behold, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. As Jeremiah is preaching and everything seems normal, he speaks as if the armies have already entered the territory. The noise of the report has come. The great commotion out of the north country. The invading armies of Babylon are bringing a disaster. The cities are going to be destroyed. And so Jeremiah is painting a picture. And the picture that Jeremiah paints, he goes, listen. 
If you listen hard enough, you'll hear the chariot wheels as they're making their way here. Do you hear it? Do you hear the sound of the armies as they march in this direction? Do you hear the clanging of their swords? Do you hear the cries that they're making as they're coming for you? To kill your husbands and kill your children and destroy the cities and to take you captive. The same is true for each and every one of us. Part of the purpose of the pastor, or at least the preacher, is to help you hear what sometimes you don't want to hear. It's to listen for the things that you may not be listening for. The sounds of an impending judgment. And so in verse 23 it says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Do you understand what's happening at the end of his sermon? Jeremiah is concluding the sermon by offering a prayer. Remember what God had already told him as he spoke to him. God spoke to Jeremiah and said, don't pray for these people anymore. Is Jeremiah disobeying God? No, he's not necessarily praying for them. He's praying for himself. Oh, Lord. I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah, here's what he's doing. Jeremiah is confessing the weakness of himself. And he's confessing the people's utter inability to direct their own lives. Do you understand what he's praying? He's basically, he's praying. There's an odd play of, on words in, in verse 23. In the opening sentence where it says, oh, Lord, I know the way of a man. You see man in the first sentence and look at the second sentence. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. The English word man is translated man in in both of those sentences. But the Hebrew word is different in each sentence. In the first sentence, the word is Adam. Which is translated man. In the second sentence, the Hebrew word is Ish, which is translated man. One Bible teacher suggests that the distinction is the difference between Adam, mortal, and living, Ish. In other words, O Lord, I know the way of mortal man is not in himself. It is not in living man or upright man or animated man to walk or direct his own steps. In other words, the living man connotes the man who's living in the strength of his own resources. The idea being human beings do not have what it takes to save themselves. They don't have the resources to make their sin go away. They don't have the resources to have a compass so that they can go in the right direction. They don't have the resources so that they can experience true and joyous and abundant life. We don't have the resources to know God or to love God or to serve God. With just simply what we're born with. We need help. We need a savior. We need someone who will bridge the gap. We need someone who will make our sin go away. And will give us the ability to have a right relationship with God. We are incapable Of knowing God, loving God, serving God apart from Jesus. In other words, through sheer willpower apart from Christ and sheer willpower apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't do what is necessary in order to have a fulfilled life. We're incapable of going in the right direction apart from the revelation of the Bible. Apart from the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the presence of Jesus. That's the prayer. 
I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Jeremiah is basically saying life without God is a long, lonely, hard, empty road. And so Jeremiah continues to pray. Oh, Lord. Correct me. But with justice. Not in your anger. Lest you bring me to nothing. This, this is his prayer. By the way, when it says, oh, Lord, correct me. We've already seen this in Jeremiah. It's the Hebrew verb. Yatsar. It can range from a mild rebuke to the expression of disapproval, like in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7, to the use of whips, like in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 11. When, so when it says, oh Lord, correct me, it can mean discipline me. But the word is flexible enough so that the, the intention is discipline me in an appropriate way, do it with justice. The idea being, it's not the severity of the punishment, but rather the attitude of both the person who mets out the punishment and the person who receives the punishment that determines the effectiveness of the discipline or the punishment. So, so here the idea is a prayer to the Lord that will bring discipline and correction, not in anger, but in justice. Here, here's what Jeremiah is praying. Punish me. But remember your character. Discipline me. But remember the plan that you have for me. What is Jeremiah's prayer? He's praying for the kind of discipline that will bring reformation and purity rather than destruction. That's what he's praying. We've gone wrong. We've made a terrible mistake. We've gone in the wrong direction. And so he prays. In your discipline... Create a mechanism so that I can be purified and reconciled. Jeremiah is agreeing with God that both he and the people deserve God's worst punishment. He prays and he says, I realize and recognize that the rebellion and the disobedience and the disgraceful things that have been done that have created the mechanism whereby judgment is going to come upon us and that we deserve the absolute worst because of our disobedience and our rebellion. But he reminds God of his great mercy. Jeremiah pleads with the Lord. That when he executes justice, that he will discipline them rather than destroy them. That even in the disciplining process, he will not reject them completely, causing their utter distinction. But rather, he would give them one more chance. And he sort of disobeys God. <laughs> In this sense, remember the Lord said, don't pray for him anymore. But Jeremiah says, we deserve the worst of the worst of the worst punishment. And by the way, even at this point, does God still have a plan for Israel? Even in the midst of all of this rebellion and disobedience. God is going to purify and purge the people in Babylon and they're going to return to the land and they're going to rebuild the temple and idolatry will become a thing of the past. But they're still going to have some issues that they're going to have to struggle through. True justice needed to be executed, but not a final irreversible doom. As a matter of fact, in the text where it says, oh, Lord, correct me, but with justice or 
in just measure. Literally in the Hebrew, mishpat, it says with judgment. Moffat translates this. Correct me, but not too hard. Leslie translates this. Correct me, but be reasonable. (laughs) Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I've done something wrong. I've done something bad. Correct me. Correct me. But don't be too harsh. Correct me. But please be reasonable. See, Jeremiah still is beginning to understand something. He loves the Lord. He loves what God loves. But he also wants to hate what God hates. And that's why in this last passage in verse 25, he says, pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. In other words, he's seeing into the future and the armies of the invading armies that are coming to obliterate and create a mechanism for extinction of the people of God. Ultimately, God's true enemy is Satan. Who wants to destroy the people of God because he thinks that he can destroy the plan of God. And the ultimate enemy is Satan who wants to destroy your family. So he thinks that he can destroy the plan of God for your family. Or to destroy the plan for the community. Or to destroy the the plan for the church. And so Jeremiah prays that God will execute judgment on the nations, that's the Gentiles, that don't know God or acknowledgement him or who wickedly persist in seeking to cause Jacob's extinction. You have to understand something that that Jeremiah lived in a world where the Assyrians had come and had completely practically obliterated all of the northern tribes. And that when Babylon would come, it would also create almost a genocidal march that would result in Jacob's extinction. Make no mistake about it. Jeremiah isn't Jesus. Jeremiah hates his enemies with a deep Passion. Jeremiah believes the enemies of God's people are also God's enemies. Jeremiah believes with all of his heart that the armies that are trying to destroy Judah and what he calls Jacob, That they're trying to destroy God's plan. It never occurs to him that these are people in part who are sinners themselves and who need a savior. As a matter of fact, there seems to be a deep division among scholars whether or not Jeremiah has borrowed from the psalmist or the psalmist has borrowed from Jeremiah. But there's a psalm that basically says, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. In other words, trying to make him extinct, laid waste to his dwelling place. Don't remember the former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. For we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. We don't know if Jeremiah copied the psalmist or the psalmist copied Jeremiah. Whatever else is happening. False worship insults God. And insults his name. And idolatry is a cosmic slap in God's face. And so Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah understands something, and that is that he wants help. You know, the image is of a child slapping a parent's face after the parent has lovingly and tenderly made every provision for that selfish and self-absorbed child. Imagine a parent brings a child into the world, comforts the child, nourishes the, the child, feeds the child, supports the child, makes every provision for the child, and then the child slaps them right across the face. That's the picture of false worship provoking God to wrath. False worship is an act of rebellion that denies the goodness of God and the supremacy of God and the authority of God over the universe. And if that's not enough, idolatry also takes those who participate in the idolatry to a Christless, godless loveless eternity away from God. This is why God hates idolatry so much. And remember what idolatry is. It's us substituting anything in the place of God. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. This is Paul's way of saying Something is here rather than nothing. The fact that something is here rather than nothing betrays the fact that an invisible, eternal God created everything. And this eternal, invisible God who created everything deserves to be glorified, but we haven't glorified him. And we're not thankful. He goes on and he says, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four footed things, creeping things. And in Romans chapter one, it basically says, so human beings take this invisible, eternal, self-existent God and they fabricate an image that they think will represent that eternal self-existent God. And what they do is they wind up worshiping something that God made rather than God himself. And a shocking and a disturbing warning is given in Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderer, the sexually immoral, the sorcerer, the idolater, all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, he's basically saying, guess what? The wages and the penalties and the repercussions and the consequences of sin, whether it took place in the time of Adam, whether it took place in the time of Noah, whether it took place in the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then finally during the time of Jeremiah, over and over again in every age and every generation, the consequences of rebellion and disobedience is judgment. Last week we talked about the cure for idolatry. How do you make idolatry go away? You have to have a proper vision of the true and the living God. Your vision has to inform you the way that you live and the way that you speak. In other words, the vision of God is, hey, guess what? You weren't made to live apart from God. You were made to live with God. You weren't made to disobey and dishonor God. You were made to obey and honor God. You weren't made to live a life of selfishness and, and, and self-sufficiency. You were made to live a life of dependence upon the God, about, upon the Lord. And that's why, again, last week I talked about the, the quote by H.H. H. Atkin, who prayed, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take my mind and think through it. Take my heart and set it on fire. Jeremiah is pouring out his heart on a people who are about to experience a catastrophe. You know what the implication is? 
There's still time. There's still time. The people are making their way into the temple. They're making their way out of the temple. They're hearing Jeremiah speak. But the implication is, will anyone listen? Will anyone hear what the prophet has to say? Is anyone willing to turn from their sin? Are they willing to reject the idols? Are they they willing to embrace the true and the living God? And you see, that's the reoccurring theme of the New Testament. That's why John writes, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That even in that dark and empty moment, when we come to the bottom of our own resources and we just simply say, I don't have anything. The only thing that I have is an empty heart and I'm asking you to fill it. All I have is a guilty heart and I'm asking you to forgive it. All I'm asking is that you discipline me and punish me with justice, remembering your mercy and remembering the plan that you have for me. And here's God's plan for you. To know you. To love you. To be with you. So that you can accompany him throughout eternity. So he comes to the end of his sermon. But he's going to preach a whole new one in the next chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. Lord, Jeremiah saw things that you allowed him to see. And Heavenly Father, we don't always have the ability to see even beyond this evening. Lord, for many of us, we still wonder what tomorrow will hold. Will there be a new job or no job? Will there be a new home or no home? Will there be a new future or no future? Will there be more pain and more guilt and more drama and more division? Or will there be healing and hope and restoration and dependence and submission? And Heavenly Father, we know that the answers to those questions really lie in one sentence. Will we trust you? Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would create within each and every one of our hearts a desire, Lord, to trust you and depend upon you and to submit to you. Lord, for the person who finds themselves far from you, estranged from you, living a lie or living in the pit of despair. Lord, we pray that they would have a vision, that they would be able to see you. And respond to your love and your gracious invitation for forgiveness and hope. And again, Lord, we thank you that you're so gracious, you're so kind, you're so merciful, you're so ready to forgive us. And reconcile us to yourself because of Jesus. And again, Lord, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.